Hi, good afternoon, everyone. We have um, a minute or so before 1 o'clock, but welcome. Thank you for coming to the City Lit Festival on this gorgeous day and being here to celebrate literature. Um, we have two very talented authors here for you today. They have um, works of short fiction that they will be reading from. Afterward, there will be a question and answer session, and please... Um, Books are available um, down in the lobby from the Ivy Book table, and I think they would be kind enough to sign them for you. So please stop by the Ivy Book table and get yourself a copy of these of these fine books. Um, if you could take just a second to make sure your phones are on on silent for them. So again, thank you all for coming. Our first author and reader is Jason Tinney. Jason is an award-winning fiction writer, musician, and actor. He is the author of Ripple Meets the Deep, Louise Paris and Other Waltzes, and Bluebird. Jason has been a contributor to several magazines, among them Baltimore, Style, Gorilla, Her Mind, Urbanite, and Maryland Life. Jason co-founded and performed with the award-winning musical groups Donegal Express and The Wayfarers. He currently performs with Limestone Connection. His book, Ripple Meets the Deep, was published by City Lit Press. And John Lewis of Baltimore Magazine says, Tinney's self-conscious characters might bleed and bruise, but it's the seemingly off-handed comment that hangs in the air or the sense of the unspoken longing that nudges them toward profundity. The restlessness stirs, bringing tension and an aching human to Tinney's prose. Please welcome Jason Tinney. Thanks, Holly. Um, full disclosure, um, City Lit Press is a um, part of the City Lit Festival, so I had an in getting here today. And I perform with Holly Morris Ellington in Limestone Connection, so it's all it's all a shell game. It's all it's all rigged. So um, I'm very happy to be here. I'm glad that today happened. Uh, there were I don't even want to talk about anything that's been happening in Baltimore City, um, um, but uh, I'm glad that uh, the powers to be allowed this festival to happen. It's a very important festival. Um, Greg Wilhelm is a hero of mine and i've said it time and time again they need to build a monument to him somewhere in this city um for all the work that he has done to promote uh the literary word in charm city so i'm going to read a couple stories uh just a couple selections from ripple meets the deep which is for sale it's a really good book i read it um i like it um so the um, the story the the book is set up. Uh, there's 20 stories, and 10 of them deal uh, with a traveling musician in upstate New York. And I'm going to read a very short one of those, and then the rest of them, the other 10, are more traditional um, short stories. So, and um, it's a pleasure to be here with Lucas. So it's a pleasure to meet you, and um, so. The, this is called Make Me a Pallet Down on Your Floor. <clears throat> a 
purple surgical glove half full of melted ice covers my right eye as we pull into the parking lot of the La Quinta Inn and Suites. Coy, the lap steel player, is driving. He's a good look and six foot two stud and has no problem with the ladies. Doesn't say much. Smiles a lot. Hence his nickname, Coy. Come to think of it, I don't even really know his real name. I just know him as Coy. You going to be okay, he asks. Yep, thanks for the lift. Tina, the fiddle player, missed my retina by half an inch. Her bow plowed into my eye socket in the middle of a red-hot rendition of Johnny Cash's Folsom Prison Blues. The blow knocked the harmonica right out of my mouth as I was about to break from the gate and solo on the caboose of, Well, I know I had it coming. I know I can't be free. But those people keep a moving, and that's what tortures me. Moments after the deal went down, a woman stood at the foot of the tiny stage at Kitty Hoyne's pub in Syracuse, holding a purple surgical glove filled with ice, swooped in like an angel. Must be a nurse. Shift over, thirsty for a late-night drink. Glove had to be in her purse. I sat out the last song, looked pretty damn silly, wandering around the bar with a purple surgical glove over my eye, looking for that woman just to thank her, but she was gone. Wasn't it God who made honky-tonk angels? This next piece is um, today's Derby Day. I don't know if there's any horse racing fans here, Um, but uh, today is Derby Day uh, in Kentucky, which is several miles to the west couple weeks preakness and this has to deal with some of my favorite subjects which include bourbon horses and january jones this is called january and um this is set in a bar um during christmas time and um hopefully the story will speak for itself look at the size of that boar a woman shouted A group in the middle of the bar was watching CNN. Breaking news, a wild boar was terrorizing a Southern California subdivision. Animal control and police officers with rifles had cornered the boar by a swimming pool. They moved in and literally hog-tied the beast. (laughs) They must have sedated that son of a bitch, said a man sipping a pint of Guinness. Of course they sedated, the bartender said over her shoulder as she delivered Sam's bourbon. Boar that size wouldn't put up with that, the man said. Well, that's why they're called boars, the bartender said laughing. As the conversation moved from boars to turf war in the swamps of Florida between alligators and invasive pythons and whether or not animals were going crazy or just going animal, a group of young professionals with Christmas presents gathered at two round tables. A woman The women, three of them, were all put together, but the four men were dressed down in khakis, button-down shirts with loosened ties and fleece zip-ups. They went to the bar and inundated the bartender with drink orders, beers, gin and tonics, tequila and fruity exotic shots that required lots of vodka, drinks specifically designed for getting drunk. Sam focused on a striking tall blonde. She removed her red velvet jacket to reveal a pleated charcoal miniskirt and tight black turtleneck sweater, which amplified her breasts. <clears throat> January Jones. 
Sam hadn't noticed the man sit down next to him. Excuse me? That woman you're looking at, she looks like January Jones, the man said, not looking up from his newspaper. He was a large man. Everything about him was large. His voice, his girth, even his gray suit seemed large for such a large man. With his palm, he pulled back his thinning gray hair, exposing a deep widow's peak. He shook his Baltimore sun and expanded it full length, high above his brows. His eyes scanned left to right, moving down vertically, giving each article a quick glance. Before advancing to the top of the next page, he breathed heavy sighed and snorted, sweat rose on his forehead, and sometimes he panted. He readjusted his body upon the stool, trying to find the most comfortable position. Occasionally he'd wiggle in his suit and pull at his shirt collar. He'd cough, phlegm swimming in his throat for a moment until he could reach for a napkin, wipe his mouth, then manage to lean over, up and over, to throw it in a trash can behind the bar. The man had not ordered a drink, but a Miller Lite was delivered to him. He took a quick sip and said thanks, not looking up from his paper. Who is January Jones, Sam said. Actress, the man said. She's on that TV show, Mad Men. Never seen it, Sam said. He finished his bourbon and continued to stare at the blonde who politely smiled at a male co-worker who was attempting to engage her in a conversation. She's into sharks, the man said. That's her cause, protecting sharks. He folded the paper and laid it down on the bar, giving his full attention to the sports section. The bartender came by and asked Sam if he wanted another Woodford reserve. Yes, please. Thank you. The man looked up from the paper. Derby bourbon. What's that? Woodford. Bourbon of the Kentucky Derby. Oh, I didn't know that, Sam said. My family used to be in the horse racing business. My daddy trained and bred thoroughbreds. Maple Run Farm in the Worthington Valley, not far from here, up the road from Sagamore, where Native Dancer is buried. Native Dancer? Magnificent horse. A lot of great thoroughbreds traced their bloodlines back to Native Dancer. Sam offered the only thing he knew about horse racing. I've been to Preakness a few times. (sighs) A cheeseburger arrived in front of the man without him ordering Preakness, he said. Circus, half the people there don't even know a horse race is happening. Just drinking and dressing up for a show. Drunken idiots running across tops of toilets in the infield. The man lifted his bun and dumped a side of jalapenos on the burger. Then he drenched it with ketchup. He cut the sandwich in half. Limestone, he said. Good for making horses' bones strong and that bourbon you're drinking. The man bit into half of the divided cheeseburger. He wiped away the ketchup dripping from the sides of his mouth. Sam sipped his fresh bourbon. Limestone shelf runs all through the Worthington Valley, the man said. My daddy told me if we couldn't breed horses, we could always make whiskey. Well, bourbon, that is. Sam pulled out his cell phone to check the time. The man put his cheeseburger down. God damn! I gotta stop eating jalapenos had a bellyache for a week he drank his beer and continued anyway the industry has gone down the drain track owners jockey club in annapolis city of circles have effed it three ways to sunday that's why we got out the large man swallowed the remaining half of the half having wiped his hands he reached into his jacket and held a card for sam we're in the beef business now local grass-fed black angus and bison wrapped and labeled We'll see how this whole buy local bubble lasts. Um, 
final piece. <laughs> Everybody having a good time? I don't know. It's nice out there. It's, it's actually, it feels warm. I, I heard something on the radio that March was the warmest. It, it's this past March was the warmest March in five years. Now, this was a local station, but apparently, then I was not living in Mar- living in Maryland during March because it did not seem like the warmest March. But this is a story about lawnmowers. This is called Cub Cadet. I recently mowed my lawn. Um, well, part of it. Um, and I'll take it up from the middle of it. Um, this is... Um, As he made his last pass by the garage, Ryan felt a burning pierce in his neck and instinctively smacked at the source of heat. He saw a flash of yellow zip past his eyes, and then another. For a brief moment, he thought he was seeing spots brought on by the warm afternoon. The thunderous humming drowned out the purr of the cub cadet. And he realized the full scope of his predicament. Ryan looked down and saw a hole the size of softball erupting with yellow jackets. They engulfed him in a cyclone. They bore into his skin, working their stingers as if Ryan was a mad sewing project. Struggling to remove his jeans, caught up in his boots, he fell to the ground, slashing at the denim with a pocket knife till they finally came apart at the ankles. He wrestled free from his T-shirt and ran to the house wearing only blue boxer shorts and work boots. Welts on his body swelled, mixing water and baking soda. He tried to get his breathing under control, the pace applied to the wounds. Ryan lay down on the cool tile. Last summer, Denise's parents threw a pool party at their Denise's parents threw a pool party at their home, and Ryan knew Denise wore a new bikini. She hadn't worn a bikini in years. Not since before they were married. There was no mention of this new bikini, not that one needed to be made, but Denise could have said something like, well, what do you think? How do I look? And she had started to work out. But it wasn't the bikini or her newly sculptured body that unnerved him as much as it was the way he felt when he looked at her, a feeling of talons reaching down into his stomach, and clawing at his guts. Standing on the deck, sipping a Coke, Ryan looked across the pool at his wife. She lay there, oil glistening on her flat frying pan stomach, her skin turning bronze, her eyes shaded by black wraparound sunglasses. Her mother brought out fruit salad, while neighbors, grasping cocktail glasses in the shape of pineapples, walked in and out of the air-conditioned kitchen, leaving the sliding door open. Denise's father and her brother talked aimlessly about Terps football and Maryland's dismal chances of competing in the Big Ten. Bits of poorly packed hamburgers fell through the grill grate, disappearing into blue flames. Denise simply lay there, oblivious, baking in the sun a million miles away. When they got home that evening, Denise told Ryan she wanted to go for a walk around Color Lake by herself. When she returned, he said, You look beautiful in that bikini. 
thank you, she said in a voice that a stranger might acknowledge a compliment from another stranger. Thanks. Thank you, Jason Tinney, for your reading from Ripple Meets the Deep. I think with bourbon, horses, and pool parties, we're ready for the summer to get here. So thank you very much. Um, It's available downstairs, and um, thank you. Our next reader is Lucas Southworth. He grew up in Oak Park, Illinois, and studied writing at Knox College, Iowa State University, and the University of Alabama. He has published stories with Mid-American Review, Willow Springs, Hayden's Ferry Review, Conjunctions, and West Branch, among others. He is an editor at Slash Pine Press and an assistant professor of writing at Loyola University, Maryland. His book, Everyone Here Has a Gun, by University of Massachusetts Press, is the winner of the Grace Paley Prize in short fiction. The Mid-American Review says, Everyone Here Has a Gun aims directly at the reader with precision, with precision and beauty and embeds itself into the brain where it lingers long after the book is closed. Please welcome Lucas. Thanks, everyone. Um, it's an honor to read with Jason. And Holly, thank you so much for the introduction. And thanks to CityLit for um, inviting me. Um, I'm fairly new to Baltimore and um, it's great to keep meeting writers in this city. Um, and then I also want to say that it's also an honor to read under a portrait of Edgar Allan Poe, who's always been one of my favorite, favorite authors. Um, it is up there with the time I got to read under a portrait of Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> so I'm going to read a story that's a connection of very small flashes. Um, that's, it's called A Dainty Network of Bones, and it's... Um, Kind of a, um, or when I wrote it, I was thinking about fairy tales and violence, and particularly how fairy tales treat violence. Um, So I'll leave anything else to the question and answer session. Bluebeard was a killer. Pursuing young women wrapped him with pleasure. To marry them, to place the cold keys in their palms. An obsession is always an obsession, and Bluebeard gave them one. When he waited, his hands tightened to little fists. For a while, he hoped his wives could withstand. He whispered, you must resist so I can resist. But soon each wife would fit that smallest key into that smallest keyhole, and Bluebeard would lick his lips to stop the tingle. Deep in his crumbling castle, the dragon slept alongside his treasure. Mostly, people were afraid to approach him, and the dragon wanted this. He knew that the edge of the world should remain a lonely place, that humans must not tiptoe to it or topple over. Sometimes, knights tried sneaking into the dragon's decrepit corridors, wrapped in In dirty and dull armor, they moved slowly. They carried swords so heavy they could barely lift them. One by one, the dragon killed these knights, keeping safe his gold coins, his goblets, his fair-haired maidens. The ogres were killers, too. 
as were their cousins, the trolls and giants. To them, killing was living, as natural as river water cascading over rocks or earthworms surfacing to drown in the rain. These ogres, these trolls and giants, were protectors. They guarded places that were supposed to remain empty. The stinking bog, the cragged gorge, the sky. Something had to keep the humans from crossing where they didn't belong. Something had to shield the world from too much beauty. So the ogres, the trolls and giants, destroyed what they could. They kept the scales balanced. They held things in line. Rarely did they consider the future. If they did, they imagined the impossible, a time when all the world reeked with the bad breath of cannibals. On her birthday, the witch moved into a house of gingerbread and candy. Lounging in a new armchair, she smiled, dusted her hands. But soon she discovered she couldn't eat the food that surrounded her. Good things like sugar and candy had no taste. They churned in her mouth like concrete. She'd built this house, never intending it to be a trap. Now it lured children, fattened them up. Guilt is always guilt, but comfort and survival are more necessary. Before long, the witch had little trouble slitting the children from end to end, shaving fat from the insides of their skins. There were so many of them, the witch reasoned, so many uncared for, so many unwanted. Each year, she needed only two to stay warm and alive. Who could deny her these basic pleasures? Since a pup, the wolf had always lived a life of hunger. Pain always needled his stomach. His limbs always shook. But when he spotted his prey, the rabbit, the squirrel, the little child, he didn't pounce. He folded up his claws and teeth and began to play. Laughing, he juggled the squirrels and mice. Grinning, he strung the rabbits by the ears and tickled their bellies with the tip of his tongue. When children came along, the wolf spoke to them. He promised them beautiful flowers and enticed them from the path. For a while, these entertainments helped the wolf forget his hunger. They helped him forget the difference between instinct and lies, games and death. Sometimes humans can be killers. Sometimes they even kill each other. There was one who kept severed heads in his refrigerator, in his closet, skulls and bones, in the freezer, a human heart. To the killer... The heart stood for love, and love for loneliness, and loneliness for sex. At night, the smell was awful. It was intoxicating. Lying in bed, the killer remembered all the bodies, the ones he'd entered, the ones he'd split in half. He recalled how, in fits of rage, he'd even tried eating them. The flesh had tasted terrible but the killer had swallowed anyway, hoping it might be the thing to finally fill him. In his freezer, it didn't take long for the heart to turn gray, chip with ice. The killer never touched it. He never freed it from the cold. 
Like all killers, Bluebeard's house was his body, and the twists of the hallways, the twists of his mind. He enjoyed removing eyeballs with a spoon, unwrapping flesh from the fingers until a dainty network of bones lay cradled in his palm. Bluebeard loved his prey. He'd married it, brought it here, chained it up. Once disassembled, each wife became a skeleton, a collection of pieces and parts. Their shrieks, free from their bodies, wandered the dark corridors for hours until they collapsed, exhausted, on the dirty stones. And at night, their dead voices rose up again, curling. Be proud you're not like me, Bluebeard told them. And soon they understood. Still, he would not open the door. He would not let them loose. He would not let them lose themselves among the weeds. Like all killers, the wolf knew the forest well. He knew the safe place. He knew the safe places and did not hunt there. He'd found that decrepit. He'd found that deceit was best. Costumes, a slight change of inflection, a thatch of ferns, a concealing shadow. To be a hunter is always to hunt. To kill is always to use one's teeth and claws. And the wolf's sad knowledge was that more prey would always come skipping down the path. Like all hunters, his pleasure had never been in the killing and eating. The wolf knew that once he killed, once he'd eaten, the hunger would only return. So his pleasure remained in that moment that he spied the children in red. That moment he, dev- he devised a plan. They were perfect prey these children. They were never in a hurry. They were always willing to trust, to be led away. And to comfort them, the wolf ran a paw along their cheeks. To forget his hunger, he attempted to coax them into his mouth. Wherever the ogres and trolls and giants walked, fire spurted from the ground. Howls came from their stomachs. Birds stayed hidden in trees. Protecting the mud and air was a quiet curse. Humans were adept at filling space. They carried beauty with them. They created it anew. Soon they would build bridges and plot across. Soon they would dare to sprout wings. Soon they would harden the ground with sand. So the ogres and trolls and giants killed quickly. A rock to the skull, a slash of the axe, a snap of the neck. Separated from the safety of their cities, the humans were small and weak. They begged for mercy. Each day after the killing was finished, the ogres and trolls and giants scattered back to the ugly dark, leaving the bodies behind, bleeding in the sun. At the edge of the world, the scorched bodies of knights lay about the floor. In the corners, piles of bones cleaned by rats and mice climbed up the walls. It was cold, and the dragon shivered. He spouted a bit of fire to warm the room. Outside, the wind hurtled itself against the faces of the cliffs. He knew these knights had been determined once, once they'd been a part of their own valiant stories. They'd heard tales of those who'd managed to kill the dragon. They'd believed them. They'd tried to write one themselves. 
Ambitions are always ambitions, and they will always stretch too far. As long as there is a dragon, humans will always seek to kill him. They will always fail. After months of eating candy, the children had gained enough fat for the witch to fry their fingers a thousand times. They had gained enough fat for her to heat her house the entire winter. On the morning the witch planned to kill and clean these children, she sharpened her dagger. Catching her reflection in the kitchen mirror, she recognized the nasty blade, the cruel and wretched face. The witch knew she was a killer. She understood that in the end, killers are killed too. They are outsmarted, outmuscled. They are taken in by their victims. So when the children pushed her and she stumbled into the burning heat, the witch wasn't surprised. In the oven, her skin bubbled and blistered. Around her, gumdrops sizzled, sugar browned and charred, gingerbread walls, once so sturdy, folded in on themselves. The witch didn't cry or complain. She knew that living was a pleasure. She knew how easily it would end. And then there's the human killer, the killer of humans. Nothing is valiant about the end of his story. Yet we tell it. A victim abducted, drugged, tied up, somehow managed to slip away. Free from the apartment, the victim ran barefoot across the street. Blood flowed down his face. Blood flowed down the insides of his thighs. He didn't notice the bruises until the police stopped him. He didn't notice he couldn't speak until they started asking him questions. Under the street lamp, the victim stood dumb, marveling at the loveliness of his own hands. He finally led the police to the bodies of those who had not escaped, and they found the decaying parts cooled in the fridge, swimming in vats of acid and oil. Years passed before the human killer was murdered in prison. But as he died, he remembered the gray heart in his freezer and how he'd once considered opening his own chest, shoving the dead thing inside. Things are often simple. Sometimes they are not. These are the killers that haunted my youth. They are the reason I'm afraid of heights, the reason I stay away from places I don't belong, why I refuse to open my eyes in the dark. To kill is always to kill. But to be a killer is something else. So if you're thinking of it, come with me down the path. We'll bring a full basket, a full bottle of wine. We'll stroll, stroll toward the end of the world. Together, we'll bring our bodies so we can feel pain. Together, we'll bring our lives so we can lose them. Thanks. Thank you, Lucas. Um, to, to share, I'm, I'm a fiction editor at the Baltimore Review, and there are some other editors amongst us, and we had this conversation recently about what's on our nightstand um, that we're reading, and that led to this conversation of, I wish I didn't fall asleep while I'm trying to read what's on my nightstand. And I was reading Lucas's book at the time, and I said, well, I can't sleep. I'm reading this gripping bedtime story that um, gets me a little scared, so I'm not going to sleep. Um, at this time, we will open it up for question and answers with um, Lucas and Jason. 
And um, again, their books are available for sale, so stop by the IV book table when you get a chance. Um, so I'll open it up to you all for any questions you have for their, their books and short fiction as, as a book and the process of writing those. Yes? Just one question. Did you approach writing short fiction? How do you approach that in the longer? <laughs> Um, I'll go first, I guess. It's sort of the hardest question probably to answer, and it might be individual based on the person. Um, I sort of wanted, I was reading that story, and I was thinking, man, this is way more violent than I remembered it. So, <laughs> sorry. I was thinking it was like more skewed toward the fairy tale. I forgot. Uh, it's been a while since I read that one out loud. Um, so, hopefully, everyone's okay. Um, um, <laughs> yeah. I think the answer to that question also depends on how long you want your short fiction to be. So I think if you're writing a flash, you have to, which is usually something that's under 1,000, but often something that's under 500 words, you have to really hone in on an image or an idea or a character that you can, you can look at. I think when you're writing a longer story, you still have to sort of start with an image or start with a, a character moment and just kind of let it grow out a little bit. With a novel, it's, it's like 10 characters, and you kind of let those characters grow together. Um, but I always sort of preach, and the way I always start s- stories is that I start with um, an image. So if something is stuck in my head, uh, I'll start with that and see where it kind of grows outwards. Um, I don't usually start with the beginning or the end. And that's why I like short fiction is because you can kind of do that. Um, with a novel, I think you have to know maybe a little bit more. Um. I, I agree with everything um, uh, Lucas said. I, um, I've never. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I am. Um, I'm just now getting the courage up to approach uh, a longer piece, piece of prose in, in terms of a novel. You know, I've only written short stories um, and, and shorter pieces, and um, but I think that, um, and I, and I just I never had the I never had the courage to do it really. Um, I didn't didn't have the confidence um, or the attention span, I guess. But um, and I say that sort of as a joke, but I, I mean it seriously. That that but then I started to look. Well, you know, if I just write a bunch of little short stories, they're all the same characters that are. Well, we'll just call it a novel. So I, I, I think I think that for me um, is. Um, you can write a short story, which is, is great, and I think it's a great form, and I love it. It's the form that I've worked in a lot. Um, but I think that, that, that if you're dealing with the same themes and, a de- and you see, you'll see like the same characters probably showing up again, that you might as well just tie them all together. And each chapter can be a little short story, and you just sort of shift. You shuck. And you jive a little bit, and then you got a novel. You know, you know. That's I. I, I, I think that it's like I, I. I think one of the things that, and I'm not an expert on this, but um, by any means, I'm not an expert on anything except the jump shot. I've learned the jump shot. I'm an expert on the jump shot. Um, I just got my basketball groove back recently, so I'm excited about that. Um, but uh, which is kind of like a novel. The jump shot, um, yeah. That that, that, that you, 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 I think that people 
like me get daunted by it but then you just you just take it piece by piece by piece by piece it's like the way that you build a house you know it's or restore a house actually and you just take it piece by piece and by by before you know it that you have instead of looking at it as this big epic thing you know you just just like it's just a tick a talk a tick a talk a tick a talk and before you know it you've got got a novel and um and and that's what I'm working on my first novel now, and I'm very excited about it. But I'm being very conscious about not trying to build the house in one day, and just letting and and letting the characters do the thing, and everything else falls in place. Yes, Lucas, I love your story, but I'm a little curious about how you how is it a short story. <laughs> Um, well, thank you, uh, and thanks for that question, because that's still something I'm trying to answer probably, too, as I think about that story, um, or as I think about it as, I'm not sure how many pieces there are, I think there's 13 altogether, um, as I think about it as 13 very, very short stories that kind of um, link together or become a kind of chain that that becomes a story, um, but yeah, I realize that it's not a kind of traditional story in the sense that it it looks at one or two or three characters and kind of creates from that. Um, I think it's a story that's more based on probably theme or idea uh, that um, hopefully by the end of these short pieces, it feels like there's been a resolution anyway, that um, you've sort of gone on the same kind of ride, I guess, that you would on a traditional short story. And when you get to the end, you feel the same kind of uh, feeling of the ending that you would when you, when you, get to the end of this story so maybe that's the answer to the question just kind of that it feels like it's been resolved and therefore it feels like there's been movement and therefore maybe it's a story Uh, (laughs) I don't know if I'm willing to proclaim that it is (laughs) yes I wanted to ask you about the story Um, both of you sort of mentioned this idea of starting with an image and I'm wondering if you set out Um, yeah, with that story, I did start with the um, second Bluebeard section. Um, the image that, that started that story was the um, the hallways replicating the mind of the, the person. Um, and I was thinking a lot. I was reading Devil in a White City, which probably everyone has read now. And I was thinking about that weird house. It's been a while since I've read it, so I might get the details wrong. But I was thinking about that weird house that he had constructed that was almost like a its own kind of weird prison, but also its own weird reflection of who Holmes was, and uh, so I I started with that, and then I started thinking, well, maybe I can look at some of, or inspect, or investigate what some of the other characters maybe are doing, and then I jumped to the dragon, I can't remember who who came next, but the dragon and then the witch, and then I started thinking, like, how can these fit together to create that kind of feeling of resolution that I was hopefully going for. Thank you. On a follow-up question of that, um, you know, Jason, how did, when you sat down to put these stories together, did you have a theme in mind first, or did it sort of evolve as you were putting the the stories together? Mm. Well, as I mentioned before, there's 20 stories in this, and they alternate between this first-person, present-tense character that's in a La Quinta Inn uh, with the more third person 
past tense. Um, but I specifically sat when I was putting the book together, I actually kind of had a novelistic kind of idea in it that I wanted all the stories to be connected in some way. I just didn't want a collection of 20 stories that didn't, um, but, um, I am, I, 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 I consciously set out to, they're individual stories, but I, I knew that there was going to be some kind of like through line. And back to um, um, your comment about your question about an image. I mean, the music stuff I, I, I played in a band, and and so a lot of the stuff is this book could like. I mean, push comes to shove, somebody could say this book is really nonfiction. So because a lot of those, all that stuff. Um, like I did get poked in the eye with a fiddle bow. I mean, and there was no way that I was not going to write about it because that's great. That doesn't happen every day. Um, so, um, no, but, uh, so yes, I poached it. I poached that material. And, um, but, uh, so for me, it's, 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 it's not, to me, it always seems like it's, it's, not so much an image, it is a, it's a character, and it's a moment. Those are the two things that are my jumping off points. And will seem to be consistently, you know, as, as you have a character, um, you throw he or she in a predicament, and, and hopefully the catalyst is like a fiddle bow in the eye, or running over a, a hole uh, full of yellow jackets. Which also happened. Um, <clears throat> I'm getting choked up about thinking about the yellow jackets. Um, but anyway, so um, did that answer the question? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, another question? Well, I wanted to say, too, that I think in a way we're talking about the same thing. We're just sort of using different, different starting points, right? right? right. So, like, um, the Im- I use maybe image. Jason uses character, but sort of, or moment, I think, is a, is a good one, too. But what we're really saying is, like, we're starting with something that has some kind of emotional um, depth to it, like something that we feel that we want to explore. So um, I just realized that. I don't know, maybe everyone knew it already. <laughs> Who would ever think that at a literary festival that there would be, like, this conversation about words and... Who uses moment? Who uses character? Who uses image? I love this. This is great. I love this this gig. <laughs> Do either of you have anything else you want to, to add about your books? Okay, well, thank you, everyone, for coming. Both um, Everyone Here Has a Gun by Lucas Southworth and Ripple Meets the Deep by Jason Tinney are available at the Ivy Book Table. And I'll just give a small plug for the Baltimore Review. We're a small literary journal, and we have a table and um, great collections of works of short fiction and poetry and nonfiction. So thank you all for coming. Have a nice day. Thank you.